0: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Look with compassion upon the heartfelt desires of your servants, and purify our disordered affections, that we may behold your eternal glory in the face of Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever.
1: Exodus chapter 3. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression from which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel up out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The word of the Lord.
2: new testament read comes from the book of first corinthians for i do not want you to be unaware brothers that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink they drank from the rock spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord
3: Jesus Christ according to Luke. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look for three years now, I have been come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let... Alone, let it alone this one year also Until I dig around it and put on manure And then if it should be bear not, not bear fruit the next year Well, good But if, it, if not, then you shall cut it down And now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years And she was bent over And she could not fully straighten herself But when Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was straightened, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which you ought to work. Work should be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. And then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from his bond on the Sabbath? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were being done by him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ.
0: Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We do not take it for granted that we can gather this morning and hear the word read in a, a language we understand, that we can um, seek you uh, together and seek to learn um, uh, together, again, uh, from your scriptures. And so... We pray, Lord, come and help us, um, give us uh, curiosity and um, uh, deep desire uh, to learn more um, from you. And we just pray that you would feed us our minds, our bodies, our souls as we gather. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Man, so uh, many of you, I, I hope, are aware um, we've been uh, doing something the uh, last uh, few months at Church the Cross, kind of a new thing that we're calling Sessions. We actually stole it from some other uh, churches, but it's been very fun to do. Um, and these sessions are actually just gatherings where um, uh, a member of Church of the Cross will um, lead some sort of maybe discussion, teach some sort of new um, skill. I went to one that involved cooking. It was very uh, fun. Um, some sort of activity, a way to uh, help people get to know one another, a way to learn um, new things together and just grow closer as a church. And a way perhaps to invite uh, friends uh, to participate in some church activities and get to know our church who maybe aren't part of our church or part of any church. Um, and so I went to uh, one of these sessions on Thursday. Night uh, with the great name The Gospel According to Cohen um, was looking at themes of faith, um, uh, images of Christ. Actually, in the movies of the Coen Brothers. And if you're familiar with the Coen Brothers, they've made a lot of movies. I'm I'm a huge fan of the Coen Brothers. And it was a a great um, discussion and a great time to think through uh, how we see those themes and what we think is being communicated there. And there were a lot of great clips um, from Coen Brothers movies. Uh, One of them came from a movie, um, or a number of them actually came from a movie called Hail Caesar, a movie about um sort of 1950s hollywood and a hollywood uh, studio and hollywood in the 1950s and sort of movies they're making and in particular one movie that's about Jesus um and so there's a, a moment where this hollywood uh, producer is meeting with some faith leaders uh to talk to them about this movie movie when he says to them he says we are going to bring to the screen the story of the Christ it's a swell story a story told before yes But we like to flatter ourselves that it's never been told before with this kind of distinction and panache. Um, One of the faith leaders speaks up and says, well, what about the Bible? And the Hollywood producer waves him off a little bit. Um, And then the producer says to them, we do not want to send it to market except in the certainty that it will not offend any reasonable American, regardless of faith or creed. I want to know if the theological elements of the story are up to snuff. Right? So we don't want a movie about Jesus that would offend anyone. Right? And isn't that ultimately how a lot of people probably feel in our culture? We want Jesus, but we want a Jesus that won't offend anyone. And if we're honest, perhaps at times in the church, that's the Jesus we want. right? A, a Jesus that's non-offensive, that we can present, that we can talk about, and no one will be offended. But of course, when he says, I want to know if the theological elements of the story are up to snuff, If it's a non-offensive Jesus, then the answer is no, right? That the theological elements are not up to snuff. And we see that so clearly today, don't we, in our gospel reading? Just look, in this relatively short passage, Jesus is offending people, right? Someone comes to him with bad news about Galileans, his own people, being put to death. And how does Jesus reply in a rather offensive way? I tell you, unless you repent, you too will perish, right? That's not a proper way to respond, right? That's offensive, And then down uh, below, he heals a woman on the Sabbath, and Jesus is very aware that this is going to offend people, in particular, the religious leaders, and he does it anyway, right? And then in the middle of our passage, he tells a story about manure, right? That's offensive. Who wants to hear about manure? I'm kidding uh, about that. So, I mean, it's an agrarian society. I'm sure manure comes up a lot um, in that time. I want to consider, right, the, the words, the teachings of Jesus, the actions of Jesus here, right, that that offend, but offend for a purpose, right? Jesus um, is um, stirring things up out of love. And when I read this passage at first, as I was uh, studying it this week, I thought, okay, we see the compassion of Jesus and the correction of Jesus. And I was kind of looking at him like, here's where we see his compassion. Here's where we see his correcting work. But again, the more I meditated and thought about this passage, I realized, wait a second, right? We can't separate them. Right? We can't say, well, sometimes Jesus is compassionate and sometimes Jesus corrects. Right? Jesus is always compassionate. That is who he is. And therefore, when Jesus corrects, he corrects out of compassion. Right? It was good to see even as I was wrestling with this, suddenly I realized, oh, look at our colleague for the day. Uh, the colleague is the prayer we say um, uh, uh, near the beginning of um, the, service, the service. You can read it there on page five. It's always good to let these soak in. Right? They, they um, bring out biblical um, truths, these colleagues. You've made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless. Look with compassion. So the prayer is, look with compassion upon us, but then what does it say next? And purify our disordered affections. Because you are compassionate, Lord, we need your correction. We want you to purify us and correct us, and we know that you do so out of compassion. So I want to look at the compassionate correction of Christ. All right, so there's no excuse you have for not remembering that um, uh, this week. If someone says, What does your preacher preach about? which I know everyone asks you that um, all the time. What did your preacher preach about this Sunday? You can say the compassionate correction of Christ. So, first of all, we see that the Lord Jesus compassionately corrects our theology, and in particular, our bad theology. Right? When our theology is off, right, we can look to Jesus to correct that with compassion. That's what's happened in this first section. Right? There was some present if you, there at the beginning of the Luke reading at the very time right, who told Jesus about the Galileans who blood, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What does that mean? It means that there were Galileans, uh, people from Galilee, again the region that Jesus is from, who were probably in the temple offering sacrifices. And as they were offering sacrifices, Pilate had them put to death. So they were put to death during a time of worship. Right, that's happened to Christians, Christians in worship services, Christians receiving the Eucharist, um, have experienced this throughout history. Right, and this happened again to Jewish people, um, Galileans, um, in their in their worship, and the ex- expected response to news like this, and this is all we know. We don't know more historically what happened here. Right, this is it. We only know this from from the Gospel of Luke, but the expected response would probably be that Pilate. Right, how awful he is, how evil, right? And again, based on what we know, it certainly seems very evil. We don't know what perhaps, you know, supposed crimes these Galileans were guilty of. But clearly, this is an evil way uh, to put them to death and to come against them. But that's, but again, they were probably telling Jesus so that Jesus would talk about how bad Pilate was, right? That's probably what they were wanting. But Jesus, right, understands there's something else going on here. There's something off about them sharing their news. It's not just about Pilate actually, but it's about their attitude towards those who were killed. So he asked them in verse 7, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Clearly, Jesus is asking that question because he knows that's probably what they're thinking, right? That they're thinking, right? These Galileans must have been some sort of, you know, sinning, you know, they must have had some sort of egregious sin against the Lord for them to die in such an awful way. Right? We know that that was a, a thinking of the time. That when someone's suffering, you need to ask the question, well, what sin did they commit? Right? How, how do we connect sort of their um, suffering to some sin? We see that in the Gospel of John. Um, you may remember, it's a famous moment where the disciples see a man born blind, and they say, Jesus, was this man born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? Right? That mentality that says, oh, I see someone suffering. There must be some sin that they committed that's at the bottom of it. That's bad theology, right? And so Jesus is correcting and saying, do you think that's the case, that they were worse sinners? No, right? Don't you appreciate verse 3 very clearly? No, that, that, that's wrong of what you're thinking. Before we go to the rest of verse 3, let's jump to verse 4 because he gives a second example. I think it's significant that he gives a second example. Those 18 on whom the tower and Siloam fell and killed them. Now, why would he give the second example? Well, maybe the first one you could think, okay, well, Pilate is so bad then maybe it's Pilate's fault in that one. But what about a case where someone is killed by an act of God? I mean, these people were under a tower and the tower fell, or they're in the tower, the tower fell, right? It's like God sort of pushed over the tower. Clearly, that must be that they were terrible sinners and the Lord was putting them to death in this way. And once again, Jesus gives the answer no. All right, so there's a correction, a compassionate correction of their theology. And the reason it's compassionate, right, it's not just, oh, yeah, bad theology, and I'm going to show you how smart I am, although Jesus does have the best theology <laughs> for sure, right? But it's actually because bad theology hurts us. Jesus gets personal, right, because theology is personal. If we're thinking about who the Lord is, how he works in the world, how he works among his people, well, we're his people, and so that relates to us. Anytime we're thinking about theology, and we should think about theology, it's good to ask the question, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my community. And Jesus knows, right, if your mentality is, oh, when people suffer, it's because of their sin, then that can actually lead to, well, I'm not suffering right now, so I must be doing pretty well. It can actually lead to a lack of repentance. It can lead to pride, to a hardened heart that says, I don't, I don't need to repent, right? I, I'm living the blessed life, right? I don't need to repent. And so he tells them, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or you're wondering about the sins of others, well actually you need to be asking the question what about my sins and how am I dealing with those sins and am I living a life of repentance I believe that's the invitation that Jesus is giving right repentance can be a one time thing when we acknowledge we need a savior and we turn to Jesus and put our faith in him and repent but then we're called into a life of repentance a life of repentance in light of the mercy of God in light of the compassion of God so we live a life of repentance not because we're afraid that God won't forgive us because we know he forgives us and we live that life remembering oh I need the Lord and I need to be aware of my own sinfulness. Right? I don't believe Jesus is saying we can't name evil, right? We can, and we can point out where there is evil, where there is injustice. But even as we do that, right, we do so with an awareness, oh, I can, I can fall into evil myself. I need to be aware, even as I'm seeing the evil out there, that I'm acknowledging the constant need I have for the Lord's help, for his refining work, and to be in that place of repentance. Now, again, as we think about Jesus compassionately correcting us, what does this mean for us? My general sense is that I don't think probably there's any of us that when we hear about people suffering, when we read the news, when we hear about people suffering in Ukraine, that we're thinking, oh, they must be really bad sinners. Right? I mean, it's been very much the case, right, that is, is in particular in Ukraine, and this is true in so many places of the world, as we see their suffering, we're so impressed right, by their courage and by their faith and by their, their perseverance. And so I don't think that's a mentality. And actually, praise Jesus I think actually that mentality, at least in many places, has diminished because of the teachings of Jesus. I think we've learned from the Lord, right, that that actually isn't right. But I do wonder sometimes, again, thinking personally, are there moments perhaps when you're especially um, facing suffering, when you're in a difficult season where it feels like, man, it's one thing after another, everything's going wrong. Do you fall into a mentality that says, has the Lord given up on me? Does the Lord not care Maybe the Lord just really doesn't love me. I mean, I think that's where we go in this bad theology. And it's understandable, right? It's a really easy place to go uh, when you're suffering. When you feel like, God, you could stop this suffering and you're not, well, maybe it's because there's something wrong with me. And that's where we hear to need to hear Jesus' words. No. Right. I mean, I'm not denying. Right? Can sin lead to suffering? Absolutely, it can. Right. I mean, we see that in the, the Corinthians reading. He's warning them. Right. Be be aware. Right. If you continue to turn away from the Lord, that will lead to suffering. Right. If you're dishonest and you're suffering because nobody trusts you or believes you, that's connected. Right. And so we can be clear on that. Right. And at the same time, following the Lord and living in the ways that He calls us to will lead to joy. Right. Joy even in the midst of suffering. So I'm not denying that there's blessings that come as we follow the Lord. But the theology is, does the love of God change whether I'm suffering or not suffering, right? When I'm blessed, does God love me more? When I'm struggling, does God love me less? That's a theological truth that we hold on to, right? No matter what we do, the Lord's love for us doesn't change. And again, if we fall into that place, right, then we can actually turn away from repenting, right? In times of suffering and difficulty, we may not seek the Lord in repentance because we feel like the Lord's given up on me. And Jesus is saying, no, continue to repent, right? Or you will perish, right? Not in a, maybe, you know, a tower falling on you. It's not about the perishing here. It's about the perishing to come, right? To turn away from the Lord and to become hard-hearted is actually to face judgment. It's to face eternal death. That's our ultimate concern, right? We want to be spared suffering in this life. We can pray for that. But repentance, again, leads to that promise of eternal glory. That is Jesus' concern here. So he compassionately corrects Right, places where our theology actually can lead to us missing out on all that God has for us. It can actually miss out, can lead to a hard heart and a lack of repentance. And that's in connected to the next part. Right? This passage can feel a little bit like, okay, we've got three different um, you know, teachings um, in here. But I believe they're connected. I believe there's a reason um, Luke, you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put them all together. Because next, right, we have um, this parable. Um, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. I believe we see here, right, that the Lord compassionately corrects fruitlessness. The Lord wants fruit. He wants our lives to bear fruit. He wants our churches, our communities to bear fruit, our families to bear fruit. And he compassionately corrects, therefore, a lack of fruit. Um, Now, when we read the parables of Jesus... Um, sometimes we see in the parables that they're like the different pieces of the parable, the different objects, the different characters, they have symbolic meaning. Um, and so if you think about the parable of the sower, um, Jesus actually then points out and goes through the parable of the sower. This means this, this when the seeds landed on rocky ground, this is what that represents, right? And so we know sometimes parables have sort of key symbolic, um, you know, pieces in them. Other times, parables, and this is sort of the challenge of studying parables, it's just about sort of one message. Jesus tells a story to bring out some sort of surprising truth. And you may be misreading the parable if you tried to say, okay, what does that represent? What does that represent? But in this parable, right, when Jesus starts and says a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, we can stop right there and we can say, okay, what would that represent for people? Like people hearing this and hear vineyard and fig tree would there be any sort of place that those things would go? Just like we have, you know, certain things that if you speak about, you know, oh, that represents something else, right? It's very likely, right, that they would make the connection um, when they hear fig tree and vineyard of like, what does that represent? Well, what, what do we see in the scriptures? What do we see in the Hebrew scriptures? And vineyards and fig trees come up a lot. Um, vineyard, um, uh, in many places, represents the nation of Israel. God in his scriptures compares his people, his nation to a vineyard. Isaiah 5 is an extended um, metaphor of Israel being compared to a vineyard. Right? So they're probably going to hear this and think, oh, okay, this is about Israel. This is about our people, the people of God. Right? And fig trees um, also represent sort of the fruitfulness um, of Israel and just fruitfulness in general. Apparently, fig trees give a lot of fruit. And in Palestine, um, uh, I read, you know, 10 months of the year, a fig tree would actually have fruit. I was recently actually talking to um, a friend who lives in the the South. Um, He has kind of a big uh, piece of property, and he actually has a fig tree on his property. And he was talking about all the fruit this fig tree gives. And I guess his family's not really fond of figs. And so, you know, he's always trying to get them to eat figs, and they never want to eat figs. And so he's been bothered by the lack of fruit or the lack of sort of the the waste of figs. And so he decided um, that he would make fig wine. Um, uh, this is a true story. Um, and so, uh, he, uh, gathered the figs, he bought all this wine making, um, equipment, spent all this time making uh, fig wine, apparently came out then with all these bottles of fig wine and then drank some of the fig wine. And it was awful. It was just totally, um, un- uh, And his wife then hopefully pointed out to him, you didn't want to waste figs. And so you wasted a lot of money and a lot of time making fig wine that no one wants. What's the point of that? I don't know. That's a parable without a point. But I had to share it. I mean, fig wine. So uh, maybe some of you wine lovers have had fig wine before. Um, but figs bear fruit, and they're fruitful. Um, and again, we see that. So, for instance, in uh, um, Joel, in the prophet Joel, the vine withers, the fig tree languishes. Right? Those are images that are used right together, vineyard, fig tree, to show right Israel is suffering. Right? There's a lack of fruit. There's a lack of repentance. Right? And then in, in Micah... We have a vision for blessing, but he shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. See how they go together, right? This is a, a, a vision of bountifulness, right? That every man will be able to sit under a vine and under a fig tree. So, so a symbol of blessing. Okay, so when we hear Jesus saying there was a man who had a vineyard with a fig tree, we know people are going to be thinking, okay, this is about our people. This is about fruitfulness of the people. Right, And a fig tree that doesn't bear fruit is saying there are those within the vineyard that don't bear fruit. And again, the connection we can make with the passage before this is probably that fruit represents repentance. Because Jesus has just said, unless you repent, you too will perish. And so the fruit, um, you know, there's all sorts of things the fruit could represent, all sorts of good works that the people of God are called to. But again, likely we can have in our mind because of the context, this is the fruit of repentance. And it's not there. It's not being born. And so when we get to verse 8, right, verse 7, the vineyard owner basically says, let's tear it down. Based on what Jesus has said before this, repent or you two will perish. Actually, at 8, we'd probably expect him to say, and the vine dresser, cut that tree down. Right? And that's, that's what will happen to you if you don't repent. Right? And that, that'd be fair. But what does he say? The vine dresser actually said, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well, and good and if not you can cut it down see jesus even as he's saying repent or you will perish he's also saying in your fruitfulness the lord is patient and he is merciful he wants you to bear fruit right now the time will come for judgment but right now the kindness of the lord leads to repentance right it says in romans turn to the lord because he is kind he's giving you more time And so, you know, again, the Lord wants fruitfulness out of us, but because he's compassionate and merciful, he says, you know, I will continue to draw you to myself. I'll continue to invite you. I'll continue to care for you so that that fruit comes, right? We don't bear fruit through, you know, trying our hardest to bear fruit. We bear fruit through receiving the Lord's work in us and seeing that fruit grow. Now, again, as I said, we need to be careful trying to read, you know, maybe too much into parables. But I think we do have to ask the question, okay, is it significant that he mentions one of the ways he's going to help that tree out is to cover it with manure? It's actually the only time a parable mentions manure. And, again, there's lots of, you know, agrarian parables. But this is it. And, again, so I don't know. But you got to wonder, right? Is Jesus saying sometimes fruit comes through a lot of manure in your life, right? That sometimes the Lord allows. I want to be careful here. There are children present, right? Manurey situations. That the Lord actually uses, again, not to deny the reality of suffering and that suffering, I'm not saying suffering is a good thing, right? It's part of living in a fallen world. We'll say more about that in just a second. But at times I believe that God, God actually can bear fruit of repentance, bear fruit in our lives, working through and redeeming difficult situations. Perhaps it's worth wondering, right? Is that part of what Jesus is communicating there, right? Suffering can lead to a hardness of heart. It can lead to ter- completely turning away from the Lord. Or can actually learn to re- lead to receiving what God has for us, even in the midst of great trials. Then finally, connected to that, Jesus compassionately corrects the effects of sin. The effects of a fallen world upon us. And we see that in that um, final reading. Now again, there's a connection here, right? There was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now we've already seen before this that a mentality at that time was if someone's suffering... Perhaps it's because of their sin. And so we know that that's the mentality of the time. So certainly we, we hear about a woman who was bent over for 18 years who could not stand up straight, that she must have had people constantly looking at her and saying, what sin did she commit? What did she do, right? If she's suffering this way, it must be that she's guilty of some sin. But the passage makes it clear, and Jesus makes it clear in his words near the end of that paragraph, right, that it wasn't about her sin. It was about a disabling spirit, right? She was under attack from Satan. Uh, from, uh, from um, evil spirits, and that's what kept her bent over. And actually, in light of that, we can say, what incredible faith that this woman has. For 18 years, she has suffered. For 18 years, she has probably um, had shame put upon her, and yet here she is in the synagogue seeking the Lord, right, probably repenting and seeking him, just as Jesus called, called us to. That's what she is doing. And so, you know, here we have an example. This is what faithfulness looks like in the midst of suffering. Right, in, in the midst of spiritual attack upon her. And I should note, when we read the scriptures, sometimes physical illness is uh, tied to you know spiritual attack, demonic attack. Often it's not. And so if you read this and think, oh, that's just the way they thought back then. If you're sick, it's because a demon you know, was doing it. No, sometimes that was the case. Sometimes it was not. Right? In this case, that is the case. There's a spiritual component um, to that. Jesus sees her, verse 12. He calls her over and says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he lays hands on her and immediately she was made straight. Jesus compassionately corrects, right, the effects of the fall. But that's, you know, in our our physical bodies. Jesus, and he heals, he is showing. I have come to correct, right, what Satan has destroyed, what sin has destroyed. I'm bringing healing to that. And we have this powerful image of that. And you just think about this woman. What all was healed at that moment? Her body was healed. The spiritual, you know, attack um, she was experiencing, was she was set free from that. And, again, the shame that had been put on her by others was healed at that moment. Jesus brings so much healing. He brings so much correction and straightening um, to, to, to people in his healing power. Right? But there's another correction that needs to take place. Because as this woman is set free, right, as she is healed, right, there's resistance. Right, and a ruler of the synagogue, right, heartbreakingly a, a, a faith ruler Speaks up and says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Do you see what's happening there? Right? He's indignant at Jesus. Right? He's upset that Jesus healed someone. Does he confront Jesus? Right? No. Right, Jesus has got power. He right? do not want to confront Jesus. Jesus will confront him back, which happens anyway. So what does he do? He goes after the weak. Right? He goes after those who he's supposed to care for that he has power over, and he shames them. Don't come and be healed on the Sabbath day. The woman was coming to worship the Lord on the Sabbath day. Jesus healed her, and he's still trying to shame her. And Jesus doesn't allow for that. Right? He says, you hypocrites, it must have been that there were other leaders sort of alongside this leader. And he corrects them compassionately. You are hurting people when you should be caring for them. Right? You take better care of your animals. Right? You care for them on the Sabbath day, but you don't think this daughter of Abraham, who Satan is bound for 18 years, right? It's not her sin. It's an attack against her that she should be set free. Jesus compassionately again corrects bad theology, right, that, that's actually hurting people. and He co- corrects the pride, right? You've totally missed the Sabbath, right? Is there any better day that someone will receive healing and correction of the effects of sin than on the Lord's Day? This is the exact day when this should happen, that someone would be um, healed, right? Jesus knew what he was doing when he healed that woman. So we think of that woman bent over Again, we know that her, you know, physical, you know, calamities were not because of her sin. But there is a picture there, I believe, of how we can often be bent over, right? Spiritually bent over, right? Spiritually bent over maybe because of our um, sort of sinful ways we we look to others for what only God can give us, right? There's a way in which we can be bent to other people, expecting them to sort of fulfill what only God can fulfill or looking to them uh, for affirmation when we first and foremost need to look to the Lord. We can be bent over to things, maybe to goals, to things in our life, to success, right, to money. We can be, you know, spiritually bent into. We can be bent over, right, into sinful patterns, into ways in which we've just sort of maybe accepted sin. We've sort of walked away from the life of repentance and just made peace with sin in our lives. And I want to consider, actually, and just end here, and I want to take a minute to pray. Are there places in which the Lord is willing to bring straightening right, healing Actually, ways in which, again, we're we're spiritually bent when we need to, when the Lord's inviting us to stand up straight. And so I want to take a moment and just uh, pray for that. Um, I invite you to to close your eyes. We'll just pray. Lord, That we do ask. Come, Holy Spirit. And Lord, shine your light. Lord, I would just ask for each one of us, if there are places um, where you um, want us to see, perhaps, that we are are spiritually Bent in, spiritually bent in to, to something, to someone, where you're actually calling us to, to stand straight. Just come, Holy Spirit, and show us. We thank you, Lord, that you are compassionate again, you, you shine a light on those things in our lives that perhaps are, are pulling us away from you because um, you love us and you want more of us. And if there's things that coming to mind or things that you just know this is an area of bentness, then you can bring this to the Lord. And as you do so, I'm going to ask all of us, um, you can keep your eyes closed, but let's stand up please stand. As you stand up straight, just sort of imagine in your spirit the Lord straightening those bent places. What does that look like for the Lord to bring straightness where there's bentness? Let's take a moment to, again, bring that and to ask the Lord to show you what it looks like for him to to make straight, for you to stand tall in him and to turn away from those things that you've um, perhaps been wrongly bent towards. Lord, we thank you that you call us to stand firm, to stand firm in our faith. And we thank you, Lord, that you don't just call us to that, but you help us, you straighten us. So, Lord, um, just invite your continued work to purify uh, through your compassionate correction those places that are bad that we may stand straight. We thank you, Lord, that you care and love us too much (laughs) to, to not correct us. We pray that we would have eager hearts to receive all that you have for us. And we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.